Ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to introduce today's guests, a Canadian mining legend and a panel of experts joining him. As you know, Canada's abundant natural resources have earned it a global reputation as a mining leader. According to the Mining Association of Canada, there are about 1,000 Canadian exploration companies operating in more than 100 countries with more than 4,300 mineral projects in development. Canada's mining industry is also an important economic driver. A National Resources Canada report shows that one out of every 50 Canadian workers is directly employed in mining, resulting in over 300,000 jobs. Recently, we've seen our nation's mining leadership being challenged by global mining players. What does this mean for the industry's future here at home? No one is better suited to respond to this question than Mr. Pierre Lassonde. He is widely regarded as a living legend of the mining industry. The chairman of Franco Nevada, the company he co-founded, brings 35 years of leadership experience in the field. He is past chairman of the World Gold Council and the author of Gold Book, the complete investment guide to precious metals. This afternoon, Mr. Lassonde is joined by David Garofalo, President and CEO of Hud Bay Minerals, Rob McEwen, mining entrepreneur and chairman and chief owner of McEwen Mining, and Piotr Picoul, partner at McKinsey and Company's Toronto office. Before I relinquish the podium, I want to invite our live audience to join in the conversation. At each of your tables, you'll find a Q&A card. Please feel free to write your questions down and a staff member will be by to collect them so that we may include them um, for Mr. Lassonde. Now, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Pierre and our expert panelists to the Canadian Club of Toronto, Canada's podium of record. You can sit wherever you want, my dear friend. Oh, you're here. Okay. All right. I've been directed. Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, and um, we, um, I, I, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to be sort of like your conscience. And uh, so um, I invite you and sort of, uh, yeah, I invite you to write up questions and I will pass them on uh, to uh, our panelists. And I would like to start, <clears throat> um, first of all, by asking how many of you, please raise your hand, how many of you uh, are currently or have invested in mining stocks in the last five years? Okay, yeah, all right. These two did <laughs> Okay, yeah, th there's no shame in raising your hand, you know. <laughs> We've all lost money. <laughs> uh, so, um, Talking about you know losing money and, and leadership, um, uh, we know that in the last two years we've you know as shareholders um, we've been mostly led down the shaft uh, versus uh, you know up the garden path. I mean if you look at like the Bell Weather for example, Barrick is down about 72 percent from its highs in less than two years. Um, you know, uh, and, and we're not above uh, Franco Nevada. We were down a total about 40% in line with the gold price. Uh, but even base metal companies um, like Hudson Bay was down about 64%. So my first question to uh, the panel is, uh, when we talk about leadership, what went wrong? And, um, you know, what um, are, is likely to happen over the next year or two to change um, uh, to change whatever went wrong. So I will ask, I'll start with David on this one. Well, it's easy in the gold space, the ETFs did it. Um, 
Oh, that's that, so that's too an easy over, an answer. Oversimplification, I know. That's my lead, though. I, I think um, what it's given investors is an alternative to playing the commodities other than buying mine equities. And, and uh, to compel investors to not play the physical and play the money, because you have to provide a leverage proposition. And I think mining companies, by and large, have done a very poor job of that. And, and uh, the reason that's been is because there's been significant cost escalation, so there's been an erosion of margins in our space. So that leverage has been eroded in that way. Uh, companies have done a very poor job of replacing what they're pulling out of the ground. I think too often uh, mining companies see expiration as a discretionary expenditure. It's not. Uh, we're by definition a collection of finite life assets. And if we're not replacing what we're pulling out of the ground every day, then we're dying by definition. And that erodes the leverage proposition as well. So just um, to ask, for example, that Hudson Bay, how much uh, in terms of percentage of your revenue do you spend on R&D, on R which would be exploration, for example? Well, in the last year, it was about 10% of our, of our, uh, our revenues, and, uh, and, you know, which is quite high, I think relatively high uh, compared to our competitors, simply because the company we inherited back in 2010 was very much in harvest mode. It was, it was dying. There was nothing else in the pipeline. So we had to reinvest back in the ground. And that doesn't include the $2.5 billion we spent building three new mines to replace that production we were losing. Uh, with the assets we inherited back in 2010. Okay. Rob? Well, first off, the metal prices dropped by more than 40%. So to have the stock stay up when the metal price is down is hard to see. And the mining companies, there was misallocation of capital caught up in a, in a very uh, cost-push environment where all the costs were going up and budgets were blown right out of the water. So. Someone wasn't on top of that, so the leadership, the biggest companies, were missing the mark. Projects were two, three times over budget. They were behind schedule on the delivery, and the margins shrank as the prices came down, and stocks are more levered than the gold price. You, that's always been the argument, that if gold price rises, you're going to get a double or a triple in the stocks. But so, you, you could have hedged your gold. You could have. So. I was figuring it was going to 5,000. <laughs> Who did you listen to? That was easy. <laughs> so um, now, if you look at the last five years, uh, the, uh, the shareholders who sold out of Inco uh, to Falconbridge, Noranda, um, and uh, Alcan all made out like bandits. Uh, and if they took that money and then reinvested in the local company, then they probably lost everything they made. So is, is the lesson here that we should keep selling our companies and for the benefit of the shareholders, or um, you know, should we reinvest? So, uh, Pietor, what do you think? Well, I think uh, if, you look at, if you look at the last 10 years, you know, there are some, some of these flagship acquisitions of Canadian companies that everybody uh, knows about. But in fact, when we looked at the, that period, vast majority of activity of uh, M&A activity that included Canadian companies was when Canadians were uh, predators, not prey. Uh, so um, there were uh, over 340 deals in the last 10 years when Canadians bought. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's what you should be looking at. Um, the few deals where um, Canadian companies got bought um, if you look at them, there were huge write-downs. So I think you know there, there is something to it that uh, the shareholders made a, uh, uh, actually made a, made a killing on 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 uh, leaving that space. Now, so, but if you, it, if you look at the space, it's still Canadian companies are very well represented, right? I mean, look, if you just look even at today's depressed prices, 
in the, the bracket of kind of five to 30 billion market cap. There is a dozen Canadian headquartered companies, which is about a third of, of the global group, right? There's only one group where Canadians are not represented, and that's in the super majors, right? Above 30, 40 billion, there's about six companies, none of them headquartered in Canada, right? But so, in every other group, very well represented, despite all these acquisitions of Canadian companies. So you, you just uh, raise a very, very good point, and I'd like to explore it a little bit more. And that is uh, the uh, leadership in the very, very large companies vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, intermediate company. Why is it that uh, in Canada we do not have a Valley, we do not have a Rio, we don't have a BHP? Why are they, you know, they took all of our, you know, sort of like largest company away. We're very good at the juniors, it seems, but, you know, like, wh where's the, um, um, where's the leadership there? So. Um, what do you think, Rob? Well, one, the base metal companies require a great deal more capital than the precious metal companies. So those companies tend to have professional managers rather than owners. And two, I think Canada is facing a really big problem, and that is the demographic bulge of the baby boom that's moving into retirement, and they're looking at realizing on their investments or their careers. And we don't have a tax system that allows you to keep passing that asset along and holding it longer. I think we'd be very wise to look at a tax system that there's a decreasing rate the longer you hold your asset. Because the loss of Inco and Falconbridge and others, we've lost that social contribution to society. When, head office is, when the head office is moved to another country, there isn't the same contribution to society that we get when they're here, and we don't have the R&D done here. So we run the risk of remaining drawers of water and hewers of wood. <coughs> Just before I come back to David on this one, <coughs> Peter, in your, um, at McKinsey, when you look at the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the flow of money, is what Rob said true that, you know, like if uh, the, the Incos of this world, are they investing more now that there's subsidiaries into Canada than they were before, or they're actually taking money out of the country? Um, that's a great question. Um, so obviously it's, it's hard to, to get the precise data, uh, but we looked at several of the largest deals, uh, kind of, you know, CapEx, uh, five years before acquisition, five years after. And there are many situations where CapEx have, has increased by three to five times. Uh, and you could argue it's because of the acquisition. The acquirers have deeper pockets and uh, they're able to invest more. And often in, in you know, Canadian assets, creating jobs here. I mean, I, an example of it just recently, a couple of years ago, Canadian Midcap, right? Imagine this, they have two projects. They have one in Chile, one in Canada. Uh, they can't finance both. Uh, they look at those. The Chilean looks more attractive. They go after that. The Canadian is on the back burner. That company gets acquired by a foreigner. Two years down the line, that foreigner is developing both and investing in Canada as well. Right? So I think it's it all situation specific. But in general, Canada benefits from being open to acquisitions and to people coming in and, and being able to develop Canadian assets. But the point about the head office, is that not a valid point that, you know, when you have a head office in Canada, you would be more socially responsible? Uh, your R&D in particular in terms of development would be done in Canada. I mean, David, what do you think? 
Um, well, just going back to the original question, I, I, I agree with Rob that, that base metal assets generally are much more capital intensive, have longer lead times to production, and I, I would argue that the reason we don't have these large diversifieds in Canada is because the buy side doesn't value diversifieds here. I think they, they value pure plays. Um, and so that, you know, the capital for the diversified plays is really not coming from Canada. And that's why I think the pure play gold companies have thrived here. They've been able to access capital, certainly not in this environment, but in, in, in other environments have been able to much more readily raise capital and, and build some, some critical mass. And because base metal assets are much more capital intensive and, and, and considerably lower grade, and the grade trajectory has been spiraling downwards for, for well over a decade, 20 years now, that means bulk tonnage operations are, are what's required to replace what's being pulled out of the ground. Uh, that means a lot more capital. That means you need deeper pockets, and that generally is found in diversified companies. And that's why I think the head office jobs aren't here on the base metal side uh, more than anything else. Hmm. Okay. But uh, if you look at the base metal companies like Rio Tinto, BHP, they, you know, they, they've made their money and their size because of iron ore in particular and copper. I mean, two metals when you <laughs> boil it down to... Uh, and these metals are, in terms of uh, size, revenue worldwide, a lot bigger than the gold business. Uh, so therefore, they have the, the uh, you know, the intensity and, and the size. Should, um, you know, the government, for example, the, the Canadian government and the provincial government look at that and maybe um, think about, you know, a tax break for and, and encouraging uh, iron ore companies and, and, you know, and copper companies so as to create, you know, a senior company. Uh, is that something that we should think about? Rob, what do you think? We certainly have the resources, but we put a lot of impediments in the way of the development of resources in this country. Um, probably the biggest one that came out recently was just negotiations with the First Nations, topics that people don't want to talk about, but we've given them basically a carte blanche to stop any development, because there's no accountability and there's no timeline to say, let's have a discussion, let's get to a conclusion, and let's go forward. Right now, it's just, we'll have a discussion forever. Um, you have interprovincial boundaries that restrict movement of goods and services um, <coughs> and labor. Um, you need to start thinking, we need some big projects. Maybe we have to build a couple of roads to the north to open up these large areas for development. And that's where the government could come in. Mm -hmm. And I also think the taxes, whether it be mining or any other industry, we should be encouraging long-term holds, recognizing, I think, the demographic challenge that's coming, that people will want to sell. Um, if you look at mining in terms of head office movement, I'm not denying there hasn't been more capital invested, but the R&D isn't done here. Mm. And uh, we're, we're a colony that people come and put capital in, but the R&D is done in their home country. And that's what we're missing, because that will generate the secondary and tertiary industries that we're not getting now. We have consultants, but we don't, we don't have a lot of equipment manufacturers. No. Um, and you would expect in a country that mining is so dominant that we'd be much more intensive in that space. David, you operate out of uh, northern Manitoba, okay? Uh, what do you see the challenges uh, of uh, operating in that part of the world and, you know, and being world class, for example? I think it's human resources, and I think we were talking about that earlier in the reception before he came in, is, is uh, our inability to replace uh, the people that are trying the huge demographic bulge. 
that we have that are retiring over the next uh, couple of years, or the next few years. When I came into HUD Bay in 2010, um, most of my, my people were in their late 50s, you know, 30, 40 year people, and we saw on the horizon a number of them retiring, and that's come to pass. And attracting people up into northern environments when they can very readily get uh, jobs in urban settings, whether it's mining engineers or, or geologists or, or metallurgists, is, is an increasingly difficult thing to do. And the trades are much more fluid. Um, you know, an electrician can work anywhere. He mm. doesn't need to work in northern Manitoba. He can work in the oil sands. He can work in somebody's house in downtown Toronto. Um, so it's very difficult to get them mechanics, the same sort of thing. Um, so it's that difficulty attracting the trades and the professions into remote communities is the biggest challenge to sustaining our business. So you're saying that, you know, someone would rather work, <coughs> you know, near a beach in Brazil than up in northern <laughs> Canada. Yeah, I can see that. Well, if you're closed-minded, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, would there be, you know, a possibility, for example, of a government incentive to live in northern communities? I mean, there are such incentive for, I, I believe, the uh, the Great White North uh, past the 60th parallel. But you know, would you see something like this being applied to mining communities? And is the fly-in, fly-out still an option, or um, you know, how is that going to work in the future? Um, well, I, I think fly in, fly out. I mean, in certain circumstances, it's, it's absolutely a necessity. But if I have my preference, I prefer to build a community around my mind because it uh, creates a sustainable workforce. I mean, one of the one of the um, strengths of Hud Bay, who've been around for close to 100 years now, is the fact that we have multi-generation employees. I mean, we have third-generation employees. Or, you know, grandfathers started in, in our minds in the 1920s, and that's allowed us to maintain very low turnover, and that's allowed us to maintain a very good good cost structure, if you have to replace your workforce every a couple of years or every few years, uh, it drives up your costs. And so camp setups generally lend themselves to more transient workforce. Um, so if I had my druthers, I'd, I'd rather build a sustainable community around my mind. Okay. Yes. Here, just weighing in on that, um, if everyone wants to go look at YouTube, the mine of the future, RTZ, they're building a mine 2,000 miles away from Perth in Australia. Um, they're going to operate it from Perth. And they have autonomous vehicles at the mine site, and shovels, trucks, all the vehicles, and they're run by artificial intelligence, AI. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be almost a totally automated mine. So getting around this issue of moving people into remote areas, you're going to have machinery that's doing it. We still need to fix it, though. Well, I was oh, going to say, there's a people. guy with grease up to his elbows fixing that machine <laughs> in the underground shop. <laughs> Those are the people that are most difficult to find. It's not the hourly workers. Those guys you can train. Um, and we do that successfully. It's, it's the more skilled trades and, and the professionals that are very difficult to, to bring on, on to site. But you'll have fewer people there. Yes, that I can see. Pietro, what's the, the future in terms of uh, you know, um, mining technology? Um, Oh, a lot of it is, is automation, as, as Rob said, I think, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, really, uh, I think that's the only way you can stop that uh, cost inflation that mining industry has been experiencing, right? Um, you can't really have an industry that works in a double-digit inflation uh, everywhere. Um, people, I think, have forgotten in the, kind of in the, in the last few years uh, that, you know, operational efficiency is really important, uh, and I think now they're coming to it, right? I mean, if you look at just 
the, the mining companies and the number of cost and efficiency programs going on right now, it, it's huge. Uh, procurement programs, external cost reductions. And that's all needed. And, and, and I think that's also an opportunity for Canadian companies because when we look at it, uh, in, in our experience, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a mixed bag, right? Canadian companies are not the best operationally out there. Right? There are some examples that are, that are really good, some examples not so good, right? Uh, and I think if you talk about uh, wanting to have an advantage, is you really want to be excellent there. Same goes for capital, right? We, we've looked at recently, uh, I think, 40 largest uh, 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 mining projects and just compared um, what was coming out of feasibility study and what it ended up. Right? And it's amazing. Cost, CapEx was up two-thirds weighted average. Uh, I mean, how can you handle that? Right? I mean, an average was there was seven months delay and you know, a quarter of them over a year delay. You know, huge challenges. And if you look at the root cause, it's actually not these external just exchange rates and labor rates. A lot of it was engineering and design and project execution challenges. Right? So kind of you know, self-inflicted, you could say. Right? And it's not just Canadians. It's it's broader for the whole industry, but obviously, you know, since Canadian companies make up a good chunk of the industry, you know, they are at the forefront here as well, the challenge. Um, one other question from uh, the audience uh, comes back to uh, when we started earlier the conversation about the state of the market. And the question uh, relates to uh, now that uh, there is, uh, you know, so many companies that are on sale, you know, with prices reduction of anywhere from 50 to 90 percent. Uh, where is the uh, leadership uh, to uh, go out there and consolidate? Uh, David, you know, your company is in pretty good shape. Uh, can you, you know, maybe talk about that a little bit? Well, I'm, I'm not a big um, proponent of large-scale M&A. I think we've seen the disasters that have um, betaken the sector um, in the last few years in large-scale M&A. I'm, 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 I am a fan, and this, this leverages of, off of our core skills um, of uh, lending a hand to the juniors, and um, many of them have very good properties uh, where they don't have the financial nor the technical capacity to advance them forward to development. And and we can bring uh, both of those um, both of those financial uh, skills and and technical skills to bear on the projects. So that's and that's where you add value in the mining business. At the end of the day, it's it's drill and build, right? It's not uh, trying to buy cash flowing assets. The markets are quite efficient in valuing those assets. And then the pay a premium on top of that inevitably destroys value. Um, so we're happy to, to, to build our own things, get involved relatively early, uh, hope, hopefully grow the things, uh, grow the deposits out geologically, build them out ourselves, and, and de-risk them. That's what the market pays for. That's where the rating opportunity comes. And I think we would show much more leadership in doing that and helping the juniors around, along. And, and they're doing the most risky part of our business, if you think about it. In the value creation equation in the mining business is the grassroots where you have the least success. And that's where we need to put seed capital to work as, as producers and show leadership and, uh, and sponsor them. Okay, okay. Uh, Rob, uh, your comments uh, earlier about uh, uh, the um, dealing with um, uh, Aboriginal issue seems to have uh, spur a few questions in the audience. And uh, so the question really is the relationship of the mining companies uh, with, uh, you know, uh, Aboriginal issues, environmental issues. We've, you know, seen in the press over the last few years uh, Canadian companies supposedly doing damage in Guatemala and everything else. And then we've got the issues uh, out in B.C. How do you deal with that? 
you know, where, how do Canadian companies come out as seen, to be seen as leader in that field? I think the standard is set very high right now amongst the industry. And what we're doing around the world is at a high level. Uh, I noticed something on the table when we sat down. There was a little bit on McEwen Mining and Argentina and about a mine we were operating in Argentina. But we don't operate in Argentina, at a copper mine at that site we're exploring. But that was an Argentinian group that couldn't get satisfaction in their laws, in their state, where, the, where we have the property where we're exploring, or in their country, those laws. And they said, well, we'll come to Canada and try to convince the Canadian government to put their nose into Argentina's laws. We don't have a right to do that. Yep. And I think sustainability, there are laws in every country that you have to obey. I mean, the United States is quite effective trying to enforce their laws on everybody else. But we don't have that heft in the marketplace um, or in the legal system. So I think all of us look at it and say, you. If you don't respect the environment, you don't have a license to do business anywhere. And that's just a reality of the day. That um, as measurements become more and more precise, you can measure the damage faster, easier. You can pick it out of the sky. And uh, there are a lot of tools there. I think Canada is really at the forefront of a lot of the environmental issues and um, making the world cleaner. If, if you were to stand us beside some of the developing part of the world and see what's happening. Um, you can look at foreign investment. I was just in Kenya in the summer, and I'll just single out one country, but China was coming in, mm -hmm. $6 billion infrastructure development. Um, they were providing the capital, the equipment, and the labor. And the labor, they had pulled out of their prisons and were putting into Kenya. Um, you start looking at that, and, and that's not uncommon to their projects. No. And do they respect human rights? Do they respect the environment? Well, maybe in a way, but they have an urgency to get it done faster in their building. I'm not saying it's good, but I'd say Canadian mining industry holds environmental standards at a very high level. Uh, Pietro, do you see that in, uh, on the international basis? How would you rank uh, Canadian companies, for example, compared to uh, um, you know, our competitors? Um, so I think, you know, as Rob said, the adherence to environmental laws and rules is, is now table stakes, right? I mean, you, it's, it's, you just got to do it. And uh, you know, obviously, it's it's very specific to to a particular company. You know how how you get it done. Uh, but I think uh, you know Canadians are doing well here, um, and uh, and Canada as a as a place to invest also does. It has very high standards, right? Uh, we we've recently kind of looked at uh, different resource economies around the world, and and Canada scores very high when it comes to that. Um, you could even argue that you know other ways where you can keep the standards high in Canada, but it'll be a little bit friendlier to the mining industry uh, in the sense of making sure there are you know, finite timelines and things like that. Uh, so uh, I think that's, that's where the opportunity is. But, uh, but other than this, yes, try to, let's try to export the, those standards to other countries. And, and, and those standards are rising in, in other places, because I think 
you know, there is, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the days of, you know, you're going to developing countries that have no clue about what you're doing and you can do whatever you want it are over, and that's good. Um, and, and it's best if Canadian companies go in there and, uh, and apply Canada's standards uh, to it because I think it, it only does it, does, it, does it well. So just in, in that line, and uh, one question here uh, from the audience, what needs to be done to improve industry aboriginal relations in Canada to secure new mining projects? Now, uh, David, and you know, you're part of the world, you, you deal with that, I mean, Rob as well. Um, you know, how, how do you see it? What, what do you think it needs to be done? Well, well there's, there's two issues um, as relates to indigenous issues, and, and we have, in fact, very similar issues both in Canada and Peru where we're opening up a new mine in just south of Cusco. Um, the, the first issue is that um, is one of economic engagement and and I think that's inevitable uh, simply because I talked about demographics in our workforce earlier on. Well, all the white dudes are in their 50s and all the people in their 20s happen to be First Nations. So there's a, a natural match there in terms of filling out our human resource requirements in the medium to long term uh, with the First Nations and that'll I think inevitably result in better economic engagement with the First Nations. On the other side, uh, permitting's become very complex, getting the social license to operate has become very difficult, and I think we need a more prescriptive process in that regard um, in dealing not just with First Nations but just generally. And you asked earlier on, do we need a better tax regime? I, I, I'd be happy with taxes kind of staying stable where they are forever. I'd value a more prescri pres uh, prescriptive depoliticized permitting process in any jurisdiction I operate because then I have a clear line of sight in terms of when I'm going to put the money in the ground and when I'm going to get a return on my investment. Mm. Um, well, here I, I got uh, the same question a number of times and it's more, uh, you know, it, it comes closer to home and the question is, will the ring of fire ever be truly developed? I mean, probably someone here owns a few stocks up there, <laughs> and uh, they they want a clear answer. <clears throat> uh, but uh, we know that you know there's been negotiations on trying to get you know something done. Um, what, Rob? What do you think is the future of that part of the Ontario? It's like a lot of places up on Baffin Island. There was Mary River, and someone gave me a newspaper from 1960 talking about developing the north. And Mary River, this deposit up there, iron ore deposit, was prominently featured that it was going to be the next source of iron ore. They still haven't built the mine. No. Nope. Uh, it's over 50 years ago. Uh, the Ring of Fire uh, has some transportation problems. You have to get to it. And there's some people that don't want you to get there right away, at least in the manner that's been proposed. Um, you need some infrastructure development to open that space up. If you look at a lot of the places we go for recreation, ski <coughs> resorts and that, they were mining towns in the mountains. And they put the power and the roads and the water in. Um, so there's, you need that. And we opened up the country by putting a railway across it. So we need that infrastructure if we want to develop the north and lay claim to sovereignty to our Arctic before uh, that's run by a whole bunch of other countries. Who should pay for it? You need a vision for the country. We don't have a vision for the country. Mm. Uh, and, and say, this is where we're going, and do it. Should Canadian companies have uh, a permanent lobbyist in Ottawa to talk about the mining industry? Like, you know, many U.S. companies have permanent lobbyists in Washington. 
Um, should we do that? David? We have one. It's Mining Association of Canada, but it's it's severely underfunded. And, and I have to blame the people that are in this room in, in terms of the mining industry. Uh, too few of us actually pay dues to the Mining Association of Canada, but they're there to actually lobby for us. And they've got the infrastructure to do so, but they're undercapitalized. Okay. Okay. That's a very sad state of affair. So let's go back to um, the, uh, the Canadian... Um, you know, advantages, okay? Like, you know, what are, uh, Rob, in your mind, what are the, the three main um, uh, critical advantage of being a Canadian mining company? We have stability of laws, relative stability. Um, we have a large land mass that's underexplored, and discoveries are the engine of growth in the mining industry. And we have a workforce. Um, unfortunately, I'm sort of getting to two advantages. I don't have the third. Uh, That's when, all right. When, when you look at You're product, short on vision. Product, <laughs> <laughs> when you look at productivity growth, unfortunately, our scorecard in the OECD countries is in the bottom quartile. Okay. So we've been trapped by a low Canadian dollar, and it's made us lazy. We haven't had to employ. Um, process controls that made us more efficient. We let the currency. And we've produced commodities. It's still going back to the drawers of water and hewers of wood. Mm -hmm. We're not doing the secondary and tertiary industry development that we need to create a much stronger base and an innovative base. So if the government was to do something, is trying to put it into that space to create a, a more diverse benefit through the country. David? What do you see as uh, Canada's uh, advantages? Oh, well, I, I think we've been doing this for a, a long period of time. And it's, it's not just um, the skills at the ground level in terms of engineering skills, geological skills, but it's the skills in, on Bay Street. Uh, it's the skill on the buy side that understands the industry and is willing to put capital to work in it. And so even though you get, uh, occasionally get um, you know, the bush chopped off you know, with the, the Narandas and the Falcon Bridges and the Incos taken over, um, the shrubbery grows back because the roots are very deep. Okay, that's one. <laughs> yeah, but he had two. Now together, uh, there's there's a lot of vision here. <laughs> well, all right. So I got to turn here to our international consultant. To uh, what else do you see? Uh, you know, from the outside, what would you see as as Canada's advantages? I think one is uh, just huge population of risk takers, right? I mean, if you look at all these exploration companies. Uh, it's it's amazing, right? Uh, the amount of energy entrepreneurship there, uh, and and I think so that's a that's a huge advantage. Um, and this and secondly, I think this broadens to uh, you know uh, just managerial and engineering stuff as well. I mean, if you look at uh, the number of Canadian managers in mining companies, whether Canadian headquartered or outside of Canada, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's definitely hugely disproportionate to the size of economy or, or, or the size of assets, right? I mean, we're speculating, you know, probably in mining, depending on commodity, but Canada maybe has 10, 20% of global assets. Uh, and, and yet, in terms of the company share, the number of people, it's, it's, uh, it's hugely disproportionate. So I think those are, those are a couple of, couple of big advantages. But there's also, on the flip side, a huge challenge, right? Because as, as Rob said, uh, 
you would you would hope that Canada can also have an advantage in being the guys who are operationally and from capital point of view the most efficient uh, and, and most productive because you know you you are a country that uh, that uh, uh, you know has high labor cost and 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 the dollar situation you'd think you know Canada would be at the forefront from this of this and in fact it's not right it's 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 not standing out in a positive way. Uh, and that's, I think, you know, it's not, that's not an advantage. That's kind of more of a call, call to action. Uh, but I think that's where Canada could excel, right? And I think it, it could then, uh, this could spin off a lot of these secondary territory industries. But, uh, but people haven't, you know, really. Uh, but I, I'm, am I hearing that our universities are not up to it? Or you know, do you think that the Canadian universities, when it comes to mining, geological engineering, and whatnot, are you know like near the top, middle, bottom? What's your view? Um, I are they part of our advantages or not? Uh, I wouldn't want to speculate on the universities. I I don't I don't fully know here, but but I think it's it's more coming down to the managers of the companies, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, are they you know, is this really something that they're trying to optimize, uh, you know, be operationally and from capital point of view most efficient possible mm -hmm. or, or not? And I think there sometimes they're, they're just overlooking that. And, okay. and, and uh, I, it's, I'm not sure if it's a question of talent. I think Canada has wonderful talent in mining, uh, but it's, it's a question of priorities, I think. And, 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 may, and, and maybe you can perceive just, you know, Canadian mining companies, Great risk takers, great entrepreneurs go after that and forget sometimes just the operational uh, efficiencies. Rob, what do you think? I don't think it's to do with the universities. It's about the management. And the industry has, I came out of the financial industry before going into the mining industry, and I saw an industry full of inertia and hesitant to try new technologies. It's, there's a lot of straight line thinking and you want to build a mine, you put an engineer there, and he gives you a date when it's going to be finished, and he doesn't want any variations to that. And the group coming out of the mining schools today, I think, can bring about a change, and we may be at an inflection point where big data is going to be start employed in the mining industry and alter the way we look at the industry in many, many ways. And it's just using the internet to explore as I did about yep. 13 years ago, or uh, going out and automating your systems, all those tools, the graduates of the universities they are familiar with those, and they're going to transform it uh, in the next 10 years. Now, we, we in the Canadian mining business are at a great disadvantage because we're not using half of uh, the talent that's out there, uh, the specifically women. Um, I mean, we have very few women in mining. Um, you know, David, um, you know, are you, what are you planning to do at, at your board level, management level? Are you, you know, what are you doing about women, uh, you know, that are in your companies? Yeah, moving, we're moving forward, but admittedly at a glacial pace. Um, uh, you know, we have, the biggest project we've ever built in Manitoba was, was built by a woman, Kim Proctor, um, who we developed ourselves internally, but she's a rare a rare commodity. Yep. Um, and on the board, we we just added somebody. I have somebody at the VP level now that's a woman, but it's 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 not not a lot of them. Um, we're not attracting 
um, enough women in the sector. And I think gone are the days that uh, somebody's going to go into engineering school and be a mining engineer for the rest of his life at a mine. They're looking for more diversity in their skill set. And, and you know, I, I'm thinking of the program that your partner um, has at Shulik, uh, the Mining MBA program, mm -hmm. um, which um, has huge interest um, from uh, engineers, geologists who want to diversify into financial skills and want a mining-specific MBA. And so those sorts of offerings will, I think, attract more students into this into the space. And given the vast majority of students now are women going to the universities, I think if you can make the programs much more diverse and attractive like that and diversify skill set, I think you'll attract more women to it. But it, it is moving uh, forward too slowly for, for any of our so uh, yeah, news, you heard that there, right, at York University? Yes, please, thank you. <laughs> OK. Uh, Rob. 30% of my board is, is women. Well, you are to be congratulated, my friend. Um, That's got to be the highest of any board uh, in terms of women in Canada, in mining. I mean, I, I don't know of any that is better than that. And, but I do think the OSC has come out and asked for comments on whether there should be a mandatory limit. And I think that's sheer nonsense. Mm. You put people on the board because they're good. And you, you put them on because of their, their skills. You don't put them on because of their sex. And I think it's really misguided judgment to do that. The whole corporate governance is a bit of a theft from shareholders. Um, it's well intended, but poorly administered. And it creates a very risk adverse group. And we need to have the courage to step up and do bold moves if we want to move this industry forward and this country forward. Okay, so my last question, I think we're sort of running out of time, is uh, to uh, all of you, and it's going to be, um, what are you going to do differently over the next two years that's going to attract uh, you know, the uh, shareholders to come back and put money in your company? David, number one. Um, well, I think if you have a clarity and strategy and you articulate it consistently and you pursue it consistently, um, the capital will come back eventually. Um, they just, investors just want to know what they're buying when they do come back in. Um, the macroeconomic environment, we have absolutely no, uh, no influence over. Um, so right now, the general equity markets have had a, a tremendous run. And it's inevitable that capital will be cycled out of other sectors into the sickly cousins in the material space and in the precious metal space. But uh, you, you want to demonstrate uh, financial discipline. Um, you want to demonstrate leverage the commodity price. That's what's going to attract capital back in. Otherwise, they'll just go back into the ETFs. So they'll go back into the physical commodity generally. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk after about the <laughs> ETF, okay? Rob, you've got the last word, my friend. Discovery. Discovery. We're going to have some red-hot discoveries. People are going to see they can make money there, and they're going to come back. But if anyone wanted to look at the market right now, Last August was a preview of what was, is going to happen in this market when the investor returns. In August, we had July lows. August, you had a pop, 25 to 75% returns in the sector in 20 days. And then gold fell over. When people come back into gold, we've seen moves um, 25 to more than 100% since last July in this sector, and it's gone unnoticed by the market. There's going to be rotation out of the high-performing stocks into this sector. And right now, there's no bid. And when you go in, soon it'll be no offer. And to get to the old highs, you have two, three, four, five hundred percent gains to come. From his lips to God's ears, thank you very much. <laughs>
Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Fred Mifflin, and I'm a director of the Canadian Club. Uh, Pierre, David, Rob, Piot, thank you very much for uh, engaging us in a wide-ranging discussion on the challenges and opportunities facing the Canadian mining industry. As you pointed out, the sector has a lot to be proud of. Yet, we can't let our guard down as mining exploration, development, and technology continue to expand globally. Mining operations occur in more than 100 countries, with Canada near the top of that list, in large part due to efforts of individuals such as yourselves. Communities, both large and small, are benefiting from the industry here at home and abroad. So, gentlemen, we are counting on your collective risk-taking and expertise to keep Canada on the leading edge of the mining industry. Thanks very much again for joining us here today. Thank you, Fred. Uh, I'd like to echo Fred's message again. Thank uh, Pierre and all the panelists for being here um, for such an engaging discussion. And in the words of uh, Pierre, we all look forward to our mining stock prices going up the shaft. Um, our, our sincere thanks once again to today's event sponsors, Ernst & Young and BMO Capital Markets. Uh, before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to um, point out the event survey cards at each of your tables. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve each and every one of our events, so please help us by taking a minute to fill out the cards and leaving them at the table. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV for their continued promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about our club and our upcoming events, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. Thank you for joining us. This meeting is now adjourned.